nearly 10 years ago, the year uh, was uh, 2008. Uh, Pastor Tony, Elder Stephen, Elder Allen, and myself had been praying and planning and dreaming for some years um, about planting a church in East Point. We had met several times, uh, never in East Point. Uh, Pastor Tony and his family lived in Jonesboro, and so we found ourselves meeting down in Jonesboro a couple of times. Well, this one morning when we were meeting to plan and to dream and to pray, uh, we were meeting on the north side of Atlanta. Um, Pastor Tony and Elder Stephen had gotten to the restaurant early, and uh, unfortunately, uh, Elder Allen and, and myself, we, we were late. <laughs> um, so Pastor Tony and Elder Stephen were uh, communicating or conversating out, outside the restaurant. And, and lo and behold, a gentleman pulled up and noticed Pastor Tony. It was an old friend of his, uh, I think an old roommate, who uh, he had actually married and hadn't seen for some years. In the conversation, the, the, uh, it came up that we were in the process of seeking to plant a church in East Point. Now, we were wanting to meet in East Point, uh, but hadn't had an, a, a place to meet or anything like that. Well, this gentleman tells Pastor Tony, hey, I've, my father um, went to and has connections at a church in East Point. Let me make some calls and see if you can get in there. Lo and behold, I think somewhat, maybe two weeks later, there we were, meeting in East Point. And nearly 10 years later, we, are, we have never not met in East Point, by God's grace. You know, you look at that situation and you, 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 you can easily ask the, the what-if questions. What, what if Al, Elder Allen and I were on time and we were inside? What if Pastor Tony's friend met a red light or didn't decide to go to that place that morning? You know, we, we, all of us have situations and times and circumstances in our lives where, lives where we've just kind of sat back and thought and wondered and asked the question, how did this all come about? We... we we know that there is so much, uh, there, so much can happen by the what ifs, and we, we're trying to figure out how did the Lord bring us to this place? How did I get to where I am today? It is a reflective question, but you do realize for the Christian, it is a theological question. It is a theological question because when one asks, how did this come about, what they are seeking to do is to observe providence. Someone has said that he who observes providence has providences to observe. In other words, if you believe that the hand of God is working in your life and you are attentive to it and looking for it, then you will see it. You won't chalk up the situations in your life to happenstance, luck, or coincidence, but you will know that God is actively working in your life 
to bring about his plans and his purposes in the world. If you missed Bible study this past week, (laughs) uh, you missed a good discussion on this very topic. There's a plug for Bible study. (laughs) See, as Bible-affirming Christians, it is important that we press home the, the, the fact that we are not deists. We don't believe, nor does the Bible teach, that God created the world, detached himself from it, and just let it go. He he is not like the clockmaker in that regard. He doesn't whine, create the clock, whine the world, and then sit back and watch it tick. No, the Bible paints a picture of God who is intimately involved in the details of his creation. He is actively working, painstakingly meticulous in orchestrating the events of this world. Proverbs 16 and 33 reminds us of this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians 1 and 11 tells us, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works some things? All things, that's right. All things according to the counsel of his will. Here is an important truth, brothers and sisters. Do not let anybody tell you uh, the lie that God doesn't care or is indifferent to the to the things of this world. He is always working, always working. His hand is always at work in this world. And in the birth of Moses, we see the hand of God. He who observes providence has providences to observe. And what we see in in this account is that God providentially uses ordinary means to bring about extraordinary ends. He uses ordinary means. We learned last week the context in which the children, or the culture in which the children of Israel find themselves in. You do remember that it was the best of times. As God's people multiplied and increased in the land of Egypt, the, the promise God had made to Abraham was finally beginning to, to take shape. It was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times as the paranoid uh, Pharaoh feared the growth and expansion of Israel and in an effort to, to put a halt to that growth, he, he ruthlessly enslaved the people of God. And when that tactic didn't prove successful, he he sought to wipe out the people by declaring that all the males born to Hebrew women in Egypt should be put to death. It was a ruthless plan. But as we learned last week, because the Hebrew midwives feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's plan was thwarted, and it is into this situation that God would bring forth the one 
who would save his people. And he did so through ordinary means. Now, I know we like to call and refer birth of a child as miraculous. And, and listen, as, as one who was present at the birth of all three of my children, um, the birth of a child is indeed incredible. It's awesome. It speaks of God's wisdom. It speaks of his might. It, it speaks of his, 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 his wonder. However, in many respects, and I, and I, don't, I hope this doesn't sound trite, and I, and I hope you understand what I mean, but, but in many respects, the birth of a child is ordinary. It is not miraculous like, we would, like, like the miraculous events we will explore in the life of Moses as the people of God are coming out of Egypt. The birth of a child is the, the natural means created by God to bring human beings into this world. There are babies born every day. We had three born in one day in this church. <laughs> it's beautiful, glorious, but it's ordinary. And that is the picture being painted for us at the beginning of the chapter. God would bring this giant Moses, his, his greatest prophet, into the world as a baby. Notice the anonymity and quietness of the, of the birth in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. You know, we, we don't know, as you can see from the text, we don't know the name of the mother or, or the name of the, the father, and actually it won't be till later on in the text that we find out the name of this little baby boy. He was born of the tribe of Levi, which is an important note, for it's foretelling his priestly ministry, but, but outside of this information, this was a, a, a simple and, and an ordinary birth. It's amazing, you know, how twisted we get things. We assume that if God is going to use someone to save his, his people, there would be pomp and circumstances surrounding their birth. That baby would come from a well-known family. Perhaps even a family with, with means. That's not the way God works. Moses would be born to a husband and wife from the tribe of Levi with little pomp and circumstance. Brothers and sisters, this is a, this is a theme. This is a motif that we will continue to see throughout the life of Moses. But, but really, we see it throughout the entire Bible. Because it's God's M.O. He doesn't choose who you and I would choose. He doesn't necessarily call into his service the strongest, the most powerful, or the wealthiest. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 reminds us of this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that 
are so that no human being could boast in the presence of God. I hope you see yourself in that list. Brothers and sisters, don't ever think that where you were born precludes you from being used by God. In fact, it might just make you a prime candidate for his, his, his service. Moses had an ordinary quiet birth. But even in the midst of these, this ordinary uh, circumstance, you can begin to see the hand of God. We, we gather that Moses' birth was, from the text was, was ordinary, but we are quickly reminded that the circumstances into which he was born were not. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him there three months. Remember, even though the Hebrew midwives had been frustrating the, the, the plans, the plans of Pharaoh, this edict was still valid. He was still seeking to kill the boys born to Hebrew women in Egypt. I think, I think, in fact, we can assume, sadly, that the Hebrew, Hebrew midwives did not save all the children in Egypt. Sadly, some were thrown and perished in the Nile. Can you imagine the fear that would have gripped every mother when they found out that they gave birth to a boy? And in the case of, of, of Moses' mother, perhaps she, she was particularly concerned because as they, as they looked at this boy, they, they saw that he was beautiful, and the text says that he was fine, but, but we should read that and understand that as good. In some respect, God somehow let them know that this boy was going to be special. So what are they to do? She did what most any mother would have done, and, I'm, and, and I can imagine this is what the Hebrew women were doing all throughout Egypt. As their baby was born and is spared, they're, they're hiding him. There was no babies out in the public, baby boys. She could... No longer hide him. The text tells us that she acted. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, if you are a mother here, I can imagine that you are questioning, what is this? I could never, I could never take my little boy, my baby, and, and, and just send him and put him in a river. Perhaps this, this morning you, you, you read this and you are somehow judging her. How could she, how could she do such a thing? 
Maybe you've thought in the past that this action proved she was given up. Well, this is difficult. Let me say, I would hope that we would respond to this situation like Moses' mother did. For in the face of evil and in the midst of fear, like he, the Hebrew midwife, she exercised faith by doing what? Trusting in the providence of God. How, how do I know this? Because of what the Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They, they feared God more than they feared uh, uh, Pharaoh's edict. Their, their fear, their fear led to faith. Now, please understand. What this mother did was was not easy. I I think we can make good inference that this decision was wrought with tears. That there were many sleepless nights as she contemplated what she was about to do with her child. And we can make this assumption because when we read the Bible, it's important to understand that we were reading about real human beings with real emotions. This was hard. This was difficult for this this mother. But amid the fear, she exercised faith. And you know what? Faith is always the proper response to fear. Jesus teaches this this to us in in Mark chapter 5 in Jairus' daughter. You remember that Jairus had sent some servants to Jesus to, to come and to, raise, uh, to heal his sick daughter. And along the way, Jesus gets caught up with the women and the issue of blood. So he takes some time and he heals the woman with the issue of blood. But that delayed him in coming to heal Jairus' daughter. Jairus comes to Jesus after his daughter has died. And he says to Jesus, I don't want to trouble you anymore. She's dead. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. The answer to his fear was faith. Faith in Christ. <laughs> Moses' mother, not at all easy, prepared that basket, fully convinced that God's will would be done. And if it was God's will, then it would be good. In fact, the type of structure she placed Moses in to send him down the river may also give us a little insight into the faith that she demonstrated. For the word here used for for basket is the same Hebrew word that was used in Genesis for ark. For the ark, the ark that saved Moses and his family from the flood water. She put Moses in that water knowing that if God would save him, 
not knowing if he, God would save him, but fully convinced that he could save him. Much like those Hebrew boys who were told that they were going to be cast into the fire. I, know, I don't know if God will save us from that fire, but there is no doubt in my mind that he could. Oh, so, so we read this account, we say, what, what does this all mean for me? What does this, what does this all mean for you? Am, am I saying that you ought to just start throwing things against the wall and, and, and seeing what sticks? Live a risk-filled life and chalk it up to the providence of God? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Reality is, I don't know what you should do. <laughs> what steps you ought to take when fear and trepidation are gripping your heart. But here's what I do know and what I can tell you is that trusting God is always a good idea. Will this situation lead me to trust the providence of God more? Will I look back and see his hand up all in the mix and acknowledge it as so? That is what faith looks like. Well, you say your, your, your argument against that might be, well, well, what if I don't have a specific promise regarding the situation I find myself in? That, that may very well be true. God doesn't promise wedded bliss with the person you choose to marry. There is no specific promise regarding success and fulfillment in your job or career. But what God does promise is that all things work together for good and his glory. He has promised to make you holy, and he will use a variety of ordinary means to bring it about. That's why we trust the providence of God. Moses' mother sent him in that basket, put him in the river, and trusted the hand of God. Oh, amazing. And in God's wonderful providence, <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter happened to be bathing in the river at the same time baby Moses was floating down the river. Once again, God was using ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary ends. As the account continues, only the hand of God can account for the details that we, that we are given in this, in this text. Hearing a baby, baby's cry coming from a basket among the reeds, Pharaoh's daughter summons one of her servants to retrieve the basket in order to examine the contents. Noticing that it is a Hebrew uh, boy when she opens it up, she has pity on him and decides that she would adopt him as her own, knowing full well that it would be against the wishes of her father. Moses' sister, who followed the basket down the river and overheard Pharaoh's daughter desires to keep this baby, proposes a solution for nursing this young boy for the first few years of his life. Pharaoh's daughter is in full agreement. 
allows Moses' sister to choose the Hebrew woman who would, who would nurse her adopted son. She, of course, chooses his biological mother. And I am sure to the surprise and joy, but according to the providence of God, the child that, that, that she put into the river, not knowing if she would see this child again, she now gets to nurse him, teach him to fear God, receive a wage for doing so, with the future hope of her son growing up in the king's palace. Now, some might look at that and say, wow, what a coincidence. But what the people of God do is they look at that and they say, wow, look at the hand of God. Moses' Moses's birth is really a display of God's providence. It is really amazing to see how God uses ordinary means to accomplish his accomplish his purposes. But it's important to note that the providence of God is just not at work um, uh, for our good, right? It's just not working for, for our good, but the hand of God is also at work to undercut, overpower, and put to shame the schemes of the devil. You look at the birth of Moses and you may ask, why would God do it this way? It doesn't seem to make sense. that There was an edict to kill all the boys born to Hebrew women in Egypt. If God was going to save his people from oppression and cruelty, the cruelty of Pharaoh, why not choose somebody that has already been born? Why risk bring a baby boy into the world with the possibility of him succumbing to the evil of Pharaoh? Because the providence of God seeks to shame and overpower the schemes of the evil one. While Satan, as we learned last week, sought to put an end to the, deli- to the deliverer who was coming through Pharaoh's evil plot, by killing off all the baby boys born to the Hebrew women in Egypt, God was foreshadowing for him that his plan was not going to work. God was making it clear that although Pharaoh was going to try and kill all the Hebrew males in Egypt through his providence and through his protection, God was going to bring a savior into the world. In spite of that evil, not only would he bring him into the world, escaping the edict of Pharaoh, he would also have him grow up in the home of the Pharaoh who had tried to kill him so that one day he could get an audience with the king in order to save his people. Try and try And try, though you may say, and you are no match for the plans and the purposes of God. God's providence undermines the plans of Satan. Listen to what Psalm, the psalmist says in Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth sent themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Here it is. The psalmist tells us that the nations, they plot with the help of Satan. They scheme against the Lord. But, but the Lord, God, sits in the heaven and he laughs. And the reason he laughs is because he has pity on them. Their plots and schemes don't stand a chance. This is how God works. This is how he works. In fact, the events of Moses' birth foreshadow the birth of one greater. The parallels between Moses' birth and the birth of, of Jesus are unquestionable. God was pointing to the Messiah. See, like, you see, like Moses, Jesus would be born of a woman. His birth would not be spectacular, born in a little town of, of, of Bethlehem. There may have been choirs of angels singing to the shepherds, but in the manger, as Mary gave birth to Jesus, he entered this world with, with no fanfare. Like Moses' parents, who feared for the life of their little boy because of a ruthless, paranoid king, Jesus, too, would be whisked away to Egypt because of the evil paranoia of King Herod. He, too, had an evil edict declaring that all the males in Bethlehem under the age of two be put to death. But once again, in God's sweet providence, he preserved the one who would save his people. Through the ordinary means of providence, putting to shame the evil plots of the enemy, God's plans cannot be thwarted. He works his plan through ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary ends. And what are those extraordinary ends, you ask? The salvation of his people. That is God's extraordinary end. He preserved Moses in order that he would redeem the children out of Egypt. And that salvation would come about through extraordinary, miraculous wonders. We will see that later on as we go throughout the, the life of Moses. But Stephen tells us this in his sermon in Acts 7, verse 35 36, he says, this man, speaking of Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. You know what these wonders will do? We will see this. They put to, they put to shame the plots and the schemes of the evil one. God would once again demonstrate his power and authority over the plans of Satan. And God, through Moses, would miraculously redeem his people from Egypt. But ultimately, God, through Christ, would redeem 
his people from sin and death. That is God's grand, extraordinary end. Sinners becoming saints. Stony hearts becoming hearts of flesh. A a sinless man taking on the sin of a rebellious people, being put to death and rising from the dead in order to save a people. And do you know what that act would do? It would put to shame and overpower the plan of the evil one. That's what Colossians 2, 13 and 15 tells us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's what he did. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God used the ordinary means, Roman soldiers putting Jesus to death on a cross. That was an ordinary means of of death. Other men who who died on Roman crosses. It's an ordinary means. But but Jesus' death accomplished an extraordinary end, the salvation of his people. You know what? God is still working that way. I am an, ordin- I am an ordinary man. You know that. <laughs> Just talk to me for a little bit. I'm an ordinary man. But I've got an extraordinary message. It's a message that causes dead men and women to live. Now that is an extraordinary message. Listen, it's, listen this, is, this has been God's plan from the very beginning, to save his people for his glory. And no matter how hard Satan tries and, and he continues to try, he can't thwart the plans of God. And in God's providence, he has brought you to this place this morning. There are no coincidences with God. If you don't know Jesus, you're here. If you don't know him, if you've never turned from your sins and trusted in him, God, there, there are just no coincidences with God. I pray that you would heed the call, turn from your sins, trust him, believe on him this, this day. And then look back and observe the providences of God. For he who observes providences has providences to observe. Let's pray.